Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week we're off on our travels again, this time to the complex and multicultural flavours of Romania. Now, luckily, we have a lot of enthusiastic people, young people, who go back to those recipes, who rediscover our past, culinary past, and through it, our own identity. And as you can see, we also celebrate a lot of our diversity now that we were not allowed to celebrate during the communist regime. Irina Georgescu has become the voice of Romanian food in the years that she's lived outside of it. She believes that there is no better way to tell the tale of a nation than through its food and unpicks the rich fabric of its political, spiritual and culinary past to understand its present. I asked her to take me to the land layered with history and flavour. Romania is part of Europe and um, Transylvania for quite a long time was Central Europe, part of Central Europe as well. So our neighbours are uh, Hungary, Serbia, Bulgaria, uh, Ukraine and obviously we are somewhere in the middle of um, this crossroads between the Middle East and the Turkish Empire and the Western Europe and the Habsburg Empire. So the Carpathian Mountains divide the country into two major areas. Uh, what I say, the south and the east were influenced by the Ottoman Empire and the, therefore the Ottoman cuisine. And the north and the northwest um, and the southwest was, were part of the Habsburg Empire and therefore you will see a lot of uh, German and Austrian influences there and Hungarian influences as well. So we're already bumping into lots of our history lessons. We're thinking about Turkish, we're talking about Eastern Mediterranean, we're talking about Germanic, we're talking about Jewish, we're talking about Armenian. I mean, there are so many cultures that we're bumping into in our heads just as you say these words. We're also bumping into class a lot, aren't we? You know, very poor people, very middle class, very bourgeois. I mean, you start putting those together in a cookbook, you are going to have a multitude of flavours. Absolutely. So when we look at the cuisine, we actually look at the middle urban classes very often to see where the uh, countryside cooking merges with the royal noble cuisines. But yes, Romania is um, very diverse, very rich culturally. We have 18 ethnic groups that have representation in the government, so they are large enough to have a representative. So uh, in the book, I only talk about six of them, Mm. uh, and therefore I stay mainly in Transylvania and in the Banat region in the southwest, which is not necessarily as known as Transylvania, but it's as beautiful. It's a stunning area. And um, I talk about the uh, German ethnic groups in Transylvania, which are two, two major groups, the Saxons and the Swabians. They arrived in Romania at different times and with different cuisines. The Saxons have a more basic cuisine, countryside cuisine, while the Swabians, when they arrived in the 18th century, came with a more sophisticated cuisine. Even now, when you go and research and talk to the people in, in the Saxon villages, if you mention a cake that has buttercream or a lot of decorations or, you know, layers, and they go, they say, no, no, they, these are Swabian cakes. 
not Saxon cakes. Yeah. So even uh, they admit the more sophisticated cuisine of the of the Swabian ethnic groups. And then when I talk about Transylvania, also I need to talk about um, Hungary and the Hungarians, mm. which again are, are split into the Sekeli and the, the Magyars. So again, different cuisines there and um, the Sekeli are represented with the uh, gingerbread. In, uh, yeah. in my book. And we'll go into that a, a little bit. But, you know, on top of all that, this rupture of the communist regime, which, you know, kind of deliberately took the food away from the people in order to make it accessible to everyone. So you had monocultures, you had all the wonderful sort of the puddings and the food of the bourgeoisie, literally sort of not allowed. I mean, they were they were these were not permitted foods, were they? Not permitted and also impossible to make because we didn't have the ingredients. <laughs> we didn't have access to basic ingredients all the time. So sometimes perhaps you had flour, but you didn't have the eggs or the butter. Um, obviously, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Bucharest. So cities were really dependent on markets and the, the shops. In the countryside, perhaps the story was a little different because you were allowed to have some hens or to have a cow and, you know, have milk and make butter or something, or smintuna, creme fraiche. So, but cities were really depending on, on markets. And there was nothing, nothing there apart from jars uh, filled with um, beetroot and uh, green beans. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, in a know. sense, the communists were trying to make sure that everybody had food to eat. And it was uh, an anti-class thing, which, which we know was about feeding the masses by taking the food away from the privileged. That was the kind of the idea. In fact, I wrote a whole chapter about this in my book, Taste and the TV Chef, focusing on Hungary. And their souls were aching for their food identity because it came from their grandmothers, the sweet puddings they grew up on. And taking that away so brutally and so quickly, they were actually taking away the heart of what made those people who they were. Yes, the heart and the skills, because artisan of cheesemakers or charcuterie or anything like that, they were not allowed to make their own produce anymore. So those recipes disappeared. Uh, and now, luckily, we have a lot of enthusiastic people, young people, who go back to those recipes, who rediscover our past, culinary past, and through it, our own identity. And as you can see, we also celebrate a lot of our diversity now that we were not allowed to celebrate during the communist regime. I mean, nobody talked about any of these ethnic groups. Yeah, really. of course. And, and part of what was happening at that time was the standardisation of a national cuisine as well. What was, what was the intention of that, do you think? I think the intention was, uh, first of all, again, to make everything accessible. If you only had one dip to make, then you had something, the same ingredients. But also there was another thing. They wanted to bring some tourists in the country. And how do you, you know, Romania is a beautiful country, but then you have to, to have to add something to that. So a standardized menu through all the restaurants was uh, imposed and um, different names to evoke something like Chobanesque, for instance, like shepherd, shepherd pie or shepherd cheese or shepherd salad something that had cheese in it, you know, to be evocative of the shepherds in the mountains and all sorts of the that. workers. Absolutely. So mm. 
uh, or even to say something like Haiduk, something was Haiduchesque. Uh, Haiduk is um, like a sort of Robin Hood uh, thing. Yeah. So obviously, Anti-class. absolutely. So um, but that class that actually is in charge of justice, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So all sorts of things. So this all contributed to. Um, a very leveled, I would say, a, a standard cuisine. Many people, even now in Romania, they consider that typical menu in the restaurant to be traditional Romanian. But now we discover so much diversity, ethnic, cultural diversity, and they go back to their own dishes. And now we realize that our beauty in our cuisine is this rich diversity from, from every every culture. Yeah. There are so many different cultures, though. It was a, an incredible sort of project that you took on to try and un, unravel it all. And you do use words like fabric and texture and layers to kind of explain that sort of complexity. But give us a taste of Romania. I mean, you talk about ginger and saffron, for example, nutmeg, cardamom, cloves, cinnamon, orange blossom, rose petals. Is it too reductive to say that it could taste of any of those particular spices it's 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 not but it's also you know we cook with a lot of walnuts because walnut trees grow everywhere in romania so and hazelnuts as opposed to perhaps people are more used to bake with um almonds or pistachios where our country is more of the of a walnut trees and hazelnut trees so um those are our flavors too. We love apples. We have such a great variety of apples. So you can see apples in a lot of pies. We call them placinta. Placinta are uh, pies that don't, don't have any, the sides. So they only have the top layer and the bottom layer. So no sides. And you put the ap- apples in the middle. And another flavor very popular is curd cheese. We cook and we bake a lot with this fermented dairy because we have the cattle, we have the sheep, we have the goats. So we have all that milk that needs to be, in a way, preserved. So we make the creme fraiche, sour cream, um, smantuna, we make the yogurt, and those go into cakes and doughs and pastries, a lot of butter as well. So those are the flavors. And some people say to me, well, you, you don't put a lot of salt in your bakes or you don't often put, don't add a pinch of salt when you bake. And I'm thinking, yes, I don't, because first of all, I didn't uh, grow up with this habit of adding salt to my recipes, my sweet recipes. But also because we're using so much the tanginess and the, from the uh, fermented dairy, I don't need to add mm. any salt to my recipes. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very uh, interesting way of, of baking. Mm. Craft and making is very much a part of what Romania is all about. And, and you mentioned the Swabians, for example. There's a rich tradition, isn't there, of making that is really upheld and celebrated as something that is intrinsically Romanian. It is. Swabian communities, uh, Sekili communities, all communities are Romanian, first of all. And Romanian nation and Romanian, I would say, culinary identity uh, emerged from this constant, I would say, cultural exchanges and this is who we are 
So now that we are allowed to celebrate uh, each other um, and to bring to the table so much diversity, uh, we love to to buy Sekeli gingerbread. We love to buy the um, Swabian uh, crescents with poppy seeds and or with um, um, dried fruit, the Gugelhof, um the cakes. So we now you can see them on on the table when we go to to these areas to, to visit these these regions. Um, we don't see just pies put on the table, but also the cakes and the strudels and the, the crescents that belong to the heritage of these communities. How does it feel for you, having been through that period of rupture, um, coming back and, to, and, and creating or really contributing very strongly to building Romania's sense of self through its food? I mean, you are its most sort of vocal spokesperson, aren't you? I I have to be. I didn't plan to be, but in a way, it's, it is also a journey of discovery for me as well. I, I grew up during the communist regime, and I studied a history that was more or less propaganda. Yeah. And now I discover something that I wasn't able to to study or to learn when I was little. So it's a joy to to see all this diversity, and also it's also um, a joy to be able to tell you the story to tell uh, people in the in the UK the story of uh, Romania no nobody knows uh, about all these uh, rich diversity of these rich groups um, ethnic groups we only know a little about Transylvania mm. and perhaps about the Saxon villages but not about the rest and yeah. um, so it is a joy to bring all these stories to life and to find from your point of view so much interest so it it is a pleasure yeah absolutely let's go through some of your your food moments um take us first to the strudel story um about your grandmother yes well strudels are popular whether they are called strudels strudele or placinta pies just depends where you are in the country everything that's a pie is something that is flat whether is, as I said, two layers of dough with the filling in the middle, or is rolled as a, a strudel, or is swirled, is still a pie, or is folded and griddled. So there are so many ways in which we bake a pie. But a strudel in my, in my family, we first, um, we learned it from my grandmother. My grandmother was from Transylvania, but she lived in Bucharest all her life. So my mum learned, learned it from her, and then we together baked strudel, which especially my grandmother didn't have this habit to go to the shops and buy the pastry. And also it wasn't always available. So she used to make a pie from scratch. And that means you make the pastry dough, you make the, the strudel dough. And this wasn't difficult. And actually it is not difficult. And I will encourage everyone who buys the book to actually try it. The dough, the pastry with we teach you how to do it. And it's such a pleasure and so satisfying and so easy to make. So we used to have this strudel in the house, baked by our grandmother, by Dominica, and mum when she had time to, to bake. So 
usually apple goes in in a strudel or curd cheese but there are also strudels that are seasonal so for instance when cherries are in season it's a very short season so it's a very special strudel we make this cherry sour cherry strudel and also when pumpkins are in season we make the pumpkin strudel the pumpkin pie and it's just a wonderful versatile pastry to know because you can actually put all your favorite ingredients in a strudel yeah, and this was not allowed during the communist regime. You weren't able to find the pastry in the shops uh, all the time. So whether it was called placinta instead of strudel, placinta could have lacked, so pumpkin pie, but you knew that you had to roll it like this and bake it in that certain way that it's similar to, to a strudel. So there was, a, was there a sort of a sense of kind of secret Romanian food making, but putting it under another name to keep the communists happy? I mean, how did it feel in the house with your grandmother, you as a child watching her, knowing that, that well, you probably wouldn't have known that it was, it was not allowed, but your grandmother certainly would have done, wouldn't she? Yes, and perhaps my parents, you know, but nobody discussed it with us, with my, me and my sister, because we were young and, you know, going to school... Can you imagine in the classroom for me to say, well, my mom says this and that, or my dad thinks that, you know, they would have gone to jail, you know, next, next five, in the next five minutes, police would have been at the door for discussing diversity, let's put it this way. And also it was in a way a black market, I would say, of, of recipes, because we ended up with only one cookery book. Um, and that didn't really represent anything. Uh, so obviously, at work... The, from, imposed friends, by the communist regime. Yes, yeah. So at work, you know, my mum's colleagues or something, they always discussed about, you know, what else can I cook with what I have, you know. Because it was very bland, wasn't it? It was deliberately bland, not interesting. Food from the land, monoculture. It was. And also you didn't have any meat, for instance. So they started mm. to delete all those dishes with meat. Although as a tourist, and also for us, as if you wanted to go to a restaurant, the menu was loaded with meat dishes. Yeah, but you, hunter's stew. But you couldn't order. I mean, they, they didn't have the meat. <laughs> <laughs> Take us to the second food moment, the Saxon plum pie. Yes, well, that, that was a novelty for me when I tasted, when I researched uh, the book and I got in touch with all these um, Lovely ladies from the Saxon villages in Transylvania, where, by the way, you can go and visit and stay in a Saxon house because they have been refurbished sympathetically. So you can actually get the feel of a Saxon life. So they will bake you the, the, this liqueur and the donuts and all that that I put in the book. But liqueur for me was quite a, a, a wonderful thing to discover because you go from village to village and they will give you a liqueur that's totally different from the other one that you just had. <laughs> so, and, you, and you think, why? Well, first of all, a liqueur is actually a very thin bread dough. It used to be made on the bread days with some leftover dough. It was made baked at the end of the baking uh, time after the bread was out of the oven. So the oven was cooler. So you kind of stretch this dough very thinly and then you put on top whatever you have around the house. So some people only had some eggs and some butter. So you just spread that on top and it goes into a sort of silky smooth cream that you can't identify, you know, because there is no sugar basically in it. So 
And then other people love to put the semolina cream, plums, because plums would have been in their gardens, and smantina, sour cream, on top. So it just evolved uh, from village to village into whatever people had in, in, different, uh, in different areas. And I ended up with this recipe in the book because I wanted to put all the layers that you can find in a liqueur. And when I first baked it, I made the dough quite, um, um, quite thick. And I sent the photographs to these ladies and they said, well, you actually made a Romanian liqueur because the bread is too thick. You need to make it thinner. So I went back to the recipe and I made it thinner so that everybody can be happy. And, you know, it's, they have all sorts of superstitions and rules about it, but people don't have to worry about it. Just, just bake it and eat it and enjoy it and have a slice of Saxon pie. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite a deliberate sort of rebuilding of this multi-layered country after the communist regime, wasn't it? Was it 1990 that it all came to an end with the Ceausescu's? Yes, eight, eight, yes, 89, but it was December, so almost 90. It was that December, yeah. yeah, so it was that, yeah, I remember yeah. watching it on television, yeah. extraordinary. And and that's what the Saxons and the Swabians was all about, was, was kind of deliberately kind of re discovering and national funding going into the rebuilding of the kind of the icons of those cultures. Yes, national funding and also private funding as well. People who left Romania during the communist regime, people who were part of these communities, were Swabians, were Saxons, came back to their villages, even if they have only a holiday home now, but also invested in the infrastructure. But then people who decided to rebuild their, their family homes, then their village, their, their villages. So there is a whole story about the Saxon villages there and how it all started. And one lady, Caroline, she just said, you know, I want my, my Saxon village to be, to be back again, self-sustained village. And through tourism today, these villages are self-sustained and it's just an Im- impressive project yeah it's one of those uh, sustainable contributions that tourism actually does make um but religion your third food moment is about lent and the sunflower seed halva uh, again religion wasn't allowed during the communist regime was it again one of these kind of the the part of the aching soul that people brought back very quickly through their food and their rituals after the communist regime Religion, in a way, was allowed just orthodox religion. So you were allowed to go to church, uh, you know, but perhaps not every day or, you know, they were discouraging you. But it wasn't, nobody stopped you from, you know, the churches were not closed or anything like that. So in important moments of the year, like Christmas or Easter or something, you were allowed to to go and, uh, but not like everyone goes today to church. So in Romania, you go and see a lot of people in churches all the time. Lent was and still is very important in our religion as being Orthodox. But here, I just want to mention the fact that being such diverse culture, we also have the Catholic religion, the Unitarian religion in, in Transylvania as well. We have, we have many religions, from Muslim religion in the, in the east of Romania. So when I say Christmas, not the whole Romania was celebrating and is today celebrating Christmas on the same day. Uh, so it's very diverse. But in communism, the way I grew up, I knew that we are Orthodox and 
you know, Lent was part of my grandmother, let's say, way of life. So she used to observe Lent all the time. Also, because in Romania, you don't observe Lent just before Christmas and Easter. You have saint days and you also every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, it's Lent day every week. So, uh, so my grandmother used to, used to do that. So um, this genera- generated a lot of uh, vegetarian and sometimes vegan dishes in Romanian cuisine. So nothing, we're not all about pork and potatoes and all that and, and lardo. These were on the table on festive days, like everywhere around the world, we celebrate with abundance. But the rest of the year is very much a Lent, in a way, a, a Lent year. And halva is, is very uh, much part of um, uh, what we eat during Lent because we are not allowed anything that is, um, you know, animal like butter and cheese and everything, sometimes not even oil. Um, and this is what we used to eat. We used to eat uh, halva with bread, you know. And uh, halva in Romania is made with, from uh, sunflower seeds, because we have this, uh, I would say, tradition now, because it has been going on for uh, hundreds of years. We, we plant uh, sunflowers and we extract the oil and stuff. And uh, with the seeds, we're making uh, the halva. So it's quite an interesting recipe in the book. Yeah. And you gave one of your recipes to Georgie Hayden for her book, Nestissima, didn't you? Yes, we talked about the way we observe Lent in, uh, in Romania, yes. Yeah, because Mistissima tells the story of fasting and vegan fasting throughout the whole of that area, right from Greece right over to to Eastern Europe. So it's a very unifying uh, ritual, isn't it? It is unifying and it's, yeah, it's also diverse because the Catholics in Romania, for instance, don't, uh, they don't eat meat, but they are allowed to use butter and uh, cheese and the rest. So they don't really have Lent uh, in that very drastic way. Yeah. And they always yeah. talk about us, you know, because the cat, the Orthodox, they always say, well, that's why you end up in hospital when you, when you <laughs> finally are allowed to eat at Christmas <laughs> or at Easter, because you actually don't eat anything for 44 days. So <laughs> gosh, <laughs> rather you than me. Um, your final food moment is the chestnut cream or puree. Um, why did you decide to finish with this one? Uh, because it's such a lovely moment from my family. Uh, we associate the chestnut cream with uh, Transylvania. And my dad used to work in, tra- in Transylvania, in that part of Romania. And every time he uh, came home, he used to bring some gifts to the children, obviously, <laughs> me and my sister. So the gifts usually were uh, jars of chestnut cream, uh, kurtosh kolach, chimney cakes, uh, and Kovrich, the uh, the bread bagels. So these were uh, his gifts, and I loved the chestnut cream. It's um, uh, chestnuts mixed with uh, sugar syrup, and also there is a bit of rum in there as well because rum. We, we love this this flavor in Romania. So uh, I used to just eat that straight out of the jar, you know, without anything else. So in the in the book, I had to put this recipe in. And it's also very good with now with Christmas and after Christmas, when you actually discover that bag of chestnuts in the cupboard and you think, what do I do with it? So you can make this dessert very easy. And if you put some whipped cream on top, it's just 
heaven. You really wanted to really show how multicultural and multi-layered Romania is. Why is it such a drive for you? I want people to learn more about Romanians and more about Romania. Uh, almost everyone knows a Romanian. You know, they have a neighbor, someone at school, in the NHS, you know, they meet Romanians very often. But there is not a lot, a lot about our culture out there in a very accessible way. You can read a history book or you can read, you can attend an event, a concert or something that is uh, with Romanians and Romanian artists. Um, but in this way, to cook and to share something with Romanians is very hard if you're not invited to dinner, you know, by a Romanian family. <laughs> so um, I want people to get to know us and to have this uh, opportunity to learn more about us. So when they see something in the media that is not necessarily good news, they also have this information that, you know, context. we also have its context and we also have good news and we have plenty of good news about Romania to, to tell people. Most of the other immigrant cultures have made their way into a British culinary culture. Not so Romanian. Why, why is that? Is it because it's too diverse? We wouldn't necessarily recognise it as Romanian. Perhaps that too, because some of the dishes also have, in a way, uh, Greek names or Slavic names, and you kind of associate it with those cultures. But the aim of my book was to actually show that they have their own context in our culture too. There is also perhaps that we didn't have enough time to integrate properly. And because we, uh, there, is a lot of, there are a lot of misconceptions about Romanians, we tend to keep ourselves to ourselves in a way, to, um, not to uh, go to networking events, not to mingle, not to mix too much, and to cook in a way in an isolated uh, context. But that will change. I'm sure it will change. I can see it is changing. So I love that. Why do you think that people do feel that about Romanians in the way that they probably don't about the Polish or Ukrainians? What's the kind of the legacy of that feeling? Where does it come from? Just history, maybe, or the way Eastern Europe as a whole has been portrayed. I mean, for Polish people was the same for a while. It still is. It's still complicated. It's still difficult to break through to talk about your culture. Uh, Ukraine is the same. Uh, so it just takes time. So we need more people uh, to talk about Romania from a positive point of view and to encourage also a lot of tourists to go to Romania and visit Romania. Because I think tourism also contributes to this, to changing the perception of Romanians. Thanks for listening. You can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Food Jilly Smith and I'll see you next week.